The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello. In the entire history of literature, there's no one quite like William Blake. Born in London in 1757, he became a poet, an engraver, a painter, and what we can only call a visionary. In his day, he was barely recognized, let alone acknowledged, as the genius that he surely was. And his works were often dismissed or overlooked as confounded critics and a confused public failed to appreciate their wild imagination and brilliant innovation. He was viewed as an eccentric, a crank, a crackpot, and within a few generations, he was revered as one of the most original poets and visual artists that England ever produced. Even today, his idiosyncratic style can take one's breath away, and although he's been admired and imitated for a couple of centuries, his works still demand our attention, and his poem, The Tiger, might be the most anthologized poem in the English language. Who was William Blake? What kind of person was he? Why was he believed to be mad? And how was he able to persevere in spite of it? And what can we take from his works today? We'll have the story of William Blake today on the History of Literature. Okay, here we go. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Jack Wilson. Happy New Year. I guess we can say that. It's still January. We've received some great responses to our checkoff episode from last week. I hope you've had a chance to listen to that one. Number 202. I'm not sure I can do a better one than that. And after you run back through that one while you're passing by, please do hit the little five stars or whatever it is you can do to help us out. We're trying to grow this thing in 2020, this humble little podcast. It's at the toddler stage and could use a little help. I ain't too proud to beg. Ain't too proud to do just about anything, as it turns out. But that's a story for another day. Oh, oh boy. Off to a good start. I'll let your imagination run wild with that little tidbit. So here we go. William Blake today, and we're going to be reading The Tiger. What a great poem. I think it's often mistaught. Somehow the critics have a way of draining the life out of that thing. The worst poem in the world to drain the life out of. And yet they do. We'll try to do better. That will be coming up. But first, let's dive into some emails. Here's one from listener Mary in rural Montana. Subject, Chekhov episode. Thank you for persevering in the light, or should I say, dark shadow, of 2020's beginnings. Your comments on the importance of literature made my afternoon both more melancholy and thoughtful. While working in my studio, snow falling softly, I felt gratitude for your authenticity. And a Chekhov story. Just what I needed. Mercy. With exclamation marks. Mary in rural Montana. Mercy. It was the French word for thanks, not mercy with a Y. <laughs> Thank God she's not one of those listeners strapped into the podcast like a prisoner on the rack, begging me to stop turning the wheel. No? No, Mary is enjoying the show, and I have to say, I can't think of a better place to listen to gooseberries than a studio in rural Montana with snow falling softly outside. We need to do more... Chekhov episodes, maybe once every three months or so, at least until I get my fill. Mary, thank you for the email and your kind words, and I'm very glad to hear that the podcast reached you out there in Montana and that Chekhov gave you what you needed that day, the perfect accompaniment to the snow. Next email, subject, Hope in the History of Literature. Dear Jack, I'm writing to thank you for your wonderful podcast. I am a young poet about to finish my undergraduate degree, and literature has long been an important part of my life. This past year has been a great journey for me. I experienced a bitter end to the most significant romance so far in my life. 
I've had to navigate the ups and downs of a beginning poetic career, and like everyone living here today, have had to grapple with the violence of the modern American nation. Having your calm, pensive voice and charming insights to help me pass through these difficult times is an endless source of joy to me. I have just finished listening to your most recent episode on Chekhov, and I was struck by the overwhelming feelings of bleakness you described in beginning 2020. And I know that so many of us feel this way. But listening to your podcast, as cliched as it might sound to say, gives me hope. This frightening world still holds so much beauty and thought and laughter and depth, and you are a part of it. Thank you. In friendship, Campbell. Campbell. What a wonderful email. So beautiful. I am so glad that we were able to connect in this virtual way. I'm sorry to hear about the difficult times, the bitter end to the most significant romance so far in your life. But I like that phrase, so far. I know it must have been hard, but I hear some seedlings of hope in that as you recognize that life is just beginning and more significant romances are still in your future. Best of luck to you and your poetic career. We can use sensitive people writing poetry, which is a noble endeavor. And joining our community of people who love literature, I'm touched and honored that the podcast is part of your journey. Wow, what a great pair of emails. If you'd like to send me an email, the contact information is in the show notes. And if you'd like to help support the show, you can do so at patreon.com slash literature, like our new patron, Oscar, to whom we are giving a special thank you today. If a one-time donation is more your thing, you can buy me a virtual coffee at historyofliterature.com slash shop. Okay, let's take a break and then get started with William Blake. What an amazing life. It's like the, the John Lennon line when he was asked by Jan Wenner, the publisher of Rolling Stone magazine, if he was a genius. Yes, John Lennon said, if there is such a thing, then I am one. And if there's not, I don't care. When you read about Blake and go through his works, look at his paintings, read his poetry, and read about the things he saw and the things he insisted upon, the way he made his way through the world, well, it takes about five minutes of any of that before you think, whoa, this guy was different. <laughs> Sometimes you think, when you're analyzing literature and great writers, Sometimes you think this person was smart, or that person worked hard, or this person had a facility for language, or that person was in the right place at the right time. Sometimes their intelligence is overwhelming. With Blake, you think, here was a person whose mind worked in a completely different way. It's not clear to me that he was living in the same world as the rest of us. His world might have been so different, it would be as if he had traveled to another realm. It sounds mystical. And maybe it was. He was lucky he was never institutionalized. Luckily for us, he wasn't, and fortunately he was talented enough as a visual artist to bring us the visions of the world as he saw it, and a poet of genius besides, as we will see. William Blake, after this. Hey, grown-ups, the Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. 
Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. William Blake was born in 1857 in Soho, London, and lived to the age of 69, alternating residences in London and the countryside until his death in August of 1827. The years are important when considering Blake's life and works. These were the years of Romanticism, but he was on the early end of it, a pre-Romantic, he's sometimes called. He wasn't really part of the Romantic movement in terms of working or associating with other poets like Wordsworth, who was 13 years younger than Blake, or Coleridge, who was 15 years younger. Byron, Shelley, and Keats were all a generation behind, 30 years younger at least, but they died so young that Blake outlived them all. He outlived Wordsworth and Coleridge too, for that matter. But although Wordsworth and Coleridge are closely intertwined in the early Romantic phase, and Byron, Shelley, and Keats also had a kind of grouping with one another. Blake was on his own. He's part of the Romantic movement by affinity only. He was part of the zeitgeist. He tapped into it and helped to form it, perhaps, although he wasn't really a famous figure during his lifetime. He tapped into the ideas, definitely the spirit that was in the air. What were those ideas and that spirit, a love of nature, a love of the natural and the sublime. He was deeply Christian, but antagonistic toward organized religion, and in particular the Church of England. He responded strongly to the American Revolution, which occurred when he was in his late teens and early 20s, and the French Revolution, which broke out when he was 32. He hated senseless wars and worried about the blighting effects of the Industrial Revolution. He championed free love, and we can position him in the context of the prevailing thoughts of his day. He lived exclusively in England and only during the reign of Queen Victoria. Darwin's On the Origin of Species was published when he was two. He had an uneasy relationship with Enlightenment thinkers. While they were champions of rationalism and evidence-based scientific discovery, he believed that the imagination was the most important element of human existence. In art, he opposed the painters of his day, preferring a return to Michelangelo and other classical painters. He hated Isaac Newton and came to believe that painting had been influenced by Newton's theories of optics. So he himself eschewed the technique known as mezzotints, which had thousands of tiny dots to produce its effect, in favor of strong, unbroken, fluid lines. He believed in freedom, which led him to advocate against slavery and promote racial and sexual equality. He also criticized the military and the limitations that it put on soldiers. Blake's father, James, was a hosier, a making of leggings, who lived in London. He had six brothers and sisters, four of whom survived beyond infancy, but it didn't take long for William to stand out. When he was four, he insisted that he saw the head of God through a window. He didn't receive formal schooling, instead being left to roam the streets of London and the surrounding countryside, which he could reach easily. He saw the prophet Ezekiel in a field, and when he was ten, he was startled to see, quote, a tree filled with angels, bright angelic wings bespangling every bough like stars, end quote. That quote is from his early biographer, Alexander Gilchrist, who wrote his life of Blake about ten years after Blake's death. Gilchrist also said Blake, quote, neither wrote nor drew for the many, hardly for workaday men at all, rather for children and angels, himself a divine child whose playthings were sun, moon, and stars, the heavens and the earth, end quote. Blake's parents were unsettled by his description of the tree filled with angels, and his father planned to beat him, but his mother intervened. Thank goodness, poor kid. Blake was sent to a drawing school, and although he showed promise, the school cost money. So at the age of 14, he was apprenticed to an engraver. 
They took him to a, his family first took him to a highly respected engraver named William Ryland. But Blake told his father later, I do not like the look of the man's face. It looks as if he will live to be hanged. So they took him to a lesser-known engraver named James Basire, who took on young William. Ryland, by the way, actually was hanged 11 years later for forgery. Luckily, Basire was not hanged, and he seems to have been a good master. Blake got along with him, although there are some indications that he rejected some of Basire's views of art. But he got along, along with him okay and learned his craft for the next seven years. That's not to say that Blake got along with everyone. He seems to have argued with his fellow apprentice, a bloke named James Parker, who he was to work with for most of his life. And perhaps because he and Parker were fighting, Blake was sent to copy images from Gothic churches around London. He was deeply influenced by Westminster Abbey in particular, with the faded brightness and color of the suits of armor, the funeral effigies, and the very colored waxworks. While he was at the Abbey, spending long afternoons sketching, he was frequently interrupted by boys from Westminster School, who disrupted his work, teasing him and tormenting Blake until finally he snapped, turned on one, knocked him off a scaffold to the ground, which Blake later said, quote, upon which he fell with terrific violence, end quote. Rather than accept a punishment, Blake complained to the dean, and the boys were no longer allowed in the abbey. Blake also claimed he had visions while he was in the abbey, like Christ and his apostles, and a great procession of monks and priests who were chanting. When, he was, when Blake was finished with Basire, he enrolled in the Royal Academy and took on engraving projects to earn his living. He was in demand by booksellers and was commissioned for illustrations for works like Don Quixote, our old friend Don Quixote, <laughs> friend of the show. He also did works for periodicals like Ladies Magazine. The illustrations were very successful and led to more works, but they were also viewed even then as idiosyncratic he had a way of combining spirits and bodies that was unusually vivid and expressive, but that also struck some people as weird and disorienting. That's the nature of a true visionary. One can imagine the same being said of a Van Gogh, for example. You do think of madness or madness mixed with genius, but it might also be just artistic freedom, following the different ways of seeing the world. Blake sat for a portrait that became well-known for the characteristics of his eyes that the painter was able to capture. There's a story for how the eyes got to be the way they are. That is, how the painter was able to capture the vivid quality in Blake's eyes. The description of the origin of these special eyes runs like this. Quote, According to Blake's acquaintance, Alan Cunningham, at the sitting, Blake and Phillips talked, Phillips was the painter. At the sitting, Blake and Phillips talked of paintings and of angels. And Blake said that the archangel Gabriel had told him that Michelangelo could paint an angel better than Raphael could. When Blake demanded evidence that Gabriel was not an evil spirit, the voice said, Can an evil spirit do this? I, Blake, looked whence the voice came, and was then aware of a shining shape with bright wings who diffused much light. As I looked, the shape dilated more and more. He waved his hands. The roof of my study opened. He ascended into heaven. He stood in the sun, and beckoning to me, moved the universe. An angel of evil could not have done that. It was the archangel Gabriel." The painter marveled much at this wild story, but he caught from Blake's looks as he related it that rapt poetic expression, which has rendered his portrait one of the finest of the English school. We jumped ahead a little bit to the portrait. Let's go back to the year 1779 or so. Blake's in his early 20s, finding growing success as an illustrator. In 1780, riots broke out in London, and Blake wound up at the front of a mob that burned Newgate Prison. It's not clear if this was an accident or by design, but in any case, it gave him material for some of his later illuminated books, America, a Prophecy, and Europe, a Prophecy. 
For years, he'd been writing poetry of his own, and he finally came out with his own illuminated books in 1789 with Songs of Innocence. He followed this with The Book of Thel, a prophetic book, and The Marriage of Heaven and Hell. For the next few years, his output was prodigious, with Songs of Innocence and Experience coming out in 1794, and other works being written then too, some illuminated and some not, like An Island in the Moon, Visions of the Daughters of Albion, There Is No Natural Religion, and All Religions Are One. Most of his poetry was written during this period, with one exception being Milton, which wasn't complete until 1810, and Jerusalem, which was finished in 1820. In the second half of his career, he was busier with his illustrations, turning to watercolors as well, and again, these were often commissioned by fans of Blake, including 16 paintings to illustrate the book of Job and 102 watercolors to illustrate the Divine Comedy, which he didn't complete before his death in 1827. It's hard to characterize Blake's artistry. His engravings and drawings and paintings are often wild, often dramatic, the sort of thing you'd expect to see at night, just after you close your eyes, when your mind is still conscious enough to think rationally, but close enough to sleep, that shapes bend and distort and blur, animals and spirits jump into the scene with surprising vividity, as if they had minds of their own, and everything trembles with energy. This is the world that appears to me at night. It was unlocked for Blake all day long, when his eyes were open as well. When his brother died, and here we're talking about his favorite brother, Richard, whom Blake credited for helping him develop some of his more innovative engraving techniques by appearing to him in a dream and explaining the techniques that Blake should use. When Richard died, Blake said he saw Richard's soul leave his body and head to the heavens, quote, clapping its hands for joy, end quote. He later carried the spirit of Richard within him, he said. Blake was married to a woman named Catherine. His wife, when he married her, couldn't read or write and signed the marriage certificate with an X. Blake taught her to do both and how to draw and color as well as she helped him with his artworks, coloring them in. He also encouraged her to see visions as well. There are some references to stormy times early in their marriage. That's a quote, stormy times. And there's been speculation that Blake tried to bring a concubine into the marital bed in accordance with the beliefs of a radical strain of the Swedenborgian society. There's not solid evidence for this, at least none that I've seen, but I feel pretty confident that if it did happen, we could safely speculate that such a, an effort by William might have helped to contribute to those stormy times. Whatever happened early, Blake was in love, and he was devoted to Catherine until he died. The two of them worked on many projects together. Blake was also a friend of some famous political figures, radical thinkers like Thomas Paine and Mary Wollstonecraft. In around 1800, he moved to a cottage in Sussex, where he got a job working for a new patron, illustrating the works of William Haley, a minor poet. In 1803, he ran into some trouble by getting into a physical altercation with a soldier named John Schofield, who later claimed that during their scuffle, Blake had said, Damn the king, the soldiers are all slaves. Blake was charged with uttering seditious and treasonous remarks, but was later acquitted. Blake had the idea of illustrating the characters in Chaucer's Canterbury Tales. He proposed this to a book dealer who thought it was a great idea, but also thought that Blake was too eccentric to do the job properly. So, the dealer turned to one of Blake's friends to do the work. Blake, when he found out, was furious, feeling as if he was cheated, and he cut off relations with his friend. Blake had a lot of these interactions, a lot of friction, a lot of quarrels. It's important, I think, for understanding who he was. It's easy to imagine him as a recluse, maybe out there in the country, or maybe holed up in some monastery or, or room by himself. The mad genius who lives for his art and who produces astonishingly original work. Someone isolated from the world, isolated from society. But that wasn't Blake. Blake insisted on what he saw and how things should be, and everything seemed to make sense to him. And he was uncompromising about it. He believed in it. 
but he was also social, and he was commercially minded, and he earned his living. He was a figure in the world, living in it, and he sometimes seemed surprised when everyone around him thought that he was the crazy one. There's a lot to explore with Blake. He lived and worked a long time, and everything he did is worth digging into. Because he was such a visionary and had such a unique style and sensibility, his paintings and illustrations and writings are all interesting. You could read more about his life and read more about his career as an engraver, which was also full of technical innovations. He was listed as number 38 on the BBC's list of 100 Greatest Britons. One, one spot behind Sir Thomas More, and three spots ahead of Charles Dickens. The list is a little hard to take seriously, frankly, at least from a literary perspective. Shakespeare is number five. Okay, I'd have had him at number one, ahead of Churchill. Uh, and Isambard Kingdom Brunel, who I confess I'd never even heard of before, but was apparently a great innovator. Diana, Princess of Wales was number three, and Charles Darwin. Okay, I'm still putting Shakespeare at number one, but I can see the arguments for the others. I would suggest, however, that Charles Dickens at 41 is something like a crime against history. Who's ahead of him? Lord Nelson, fine. Isaac Newton, fine. John Lennon is number eight. I won't argue with one of my heroes being given the nod. Queen Victoria, yes. Paul McCartney, another hero, okay. Alan Turing, Elizabeth II, Stephen Hawking, sure. Elizabeth I, of course. She's number seven, actually. Oliver Cromwell, James Cook, Ernest Shackleton. Okay, all these are ahead of Dickens. Fine, Alfred the Great. Fine, put them all ahead of Dickens. But Michael Crawford, the TV, film, and theater actor at number 17. David Beckham at 33. John Harrison inventor of the marine chronometer. Dickens is down there in the 40s, along with John Peel, radio presenter, and Boy George, pop singer. Charles Dickens! Do you really want to hurt me, BBC? You are hurting me. Surely he's top 20, if not top 10, if not top 5. Jane Austen is number 70? Come on. And Dr. Johnson, author of your first dictionary. My God the labors that that man put forward on your behalf, England. Dr. Johnson did not even make the list. Not even on the list. Cliff Richard is number 56, and Dr. Johnson is not in the top 100. No George Eliot, no Wordsworth or Coleridge or Keats or Shelley. These people mattered. Mary Shelley, Elizabeth Barrett Browning, Arthur Conan Doyle, Agatha Christie, Pope, Dryden, Lord Byron. Okay, back to Blake. At least he was on the list. It shows you just how revered he still is, making it onto a list that barely has any authors at all. Let's take a look at why. We'll take a quick break, then come back with his most famous poem, The Tiger, and then do some analysis of that poem. of the night. What immortal hand or eye could frame thy fearful symmetry? In what distant deeps or skies burnt the fire of thine eyes? On what wings dare he aspire? What the hand dare seize the fire? And what shoulder and what art could twist the sinews of thy heart? And when thy heart began to beat, what dread hand and what dread feet? What the hammer what the chain, in what furnace was thy brain? What the anvil, what dread grasp, dare its deadly terrors clasp? When the stars threw down their spears and watered heaven with their tears, did he smile his work to see? 
Did he who made the lamb make thee? Tiger, tiger, burning bright In the forests of the night What immortal hand or eye Dare frame thy fearful symmetry? Mm. I absolutely love this poem. I have it in its illuminated version. I'm lucky enough to have the Songs of Innocence and Songs of Experience in a beautiful illuminated book, which my wife cleverly won as part of a prize many years ago. Her prize was to choose one book from the bookstore, and she smartly found a very expensive book to bring home. So we have this, and it is awesome. But it is easy to find pictures of it online, too, and take a look for yourself. So the poem in its natural context in the book has a picture of a tiger with it, which is interesting because it shows what Blake viewed when he thought of a tiger. But frankly, I kind of just like the words standing for themselves, too. In this instance, I have my own image of tigers, the ones I've seen at the zoo, and all the animals I've seen, the beautiful and dangerous animals, the wild and free animals I've seen in real life, and the tiger being a fierce, strong, proud, hulking, energetic, potentially violent example of those animals. Tigers equal power, latent power, power that can rumble, power that can roar, power that can swipe and pounce. Get Tony the Tiger and Tigger and stuffed animal tigers out of your mind. Get cute and fuzzy house cats out of your mind, too, and get snarling bobcats out of your mind. This isn't some little cat with claws and teeth that's willing to scratch and bite you to death. It's the kind of animal you call upon when you need a big task done. The kind of animal with strength, like a standing army, it makes its way through the forest, only exerting as much energy as it needs to, but bringing a ferocious, vengeful power when it does. Did Blake ever see a tiger? Possibly. They were on display in London during his lifetime, and there were accounts of tigers in the wild, reports back from India. In 1793, the year that Blake was completing Songs of Experience, that's where this poem appeared, by the way. There's nothing innocent about our tiger. Purity. Yes. Innocence? No. Lambs are innocent, not tigers. Tigers are badasses. <laughs> not sure if Blake ever used that term. It was sort of appropriate. A tiger, for example, in 1793, killed the son of Sir Hector Monroe. It was written about in The Times and in Sporting Magazine. These publications ran descriptions like this one. Quote, the tiger is allowed to be the most rapacious and destructive of all carnivorous animals. Fierce without provocation and cruel without necessity, his thirst for blood is insatiable. Though glutted with slaughter, he continues his carnage. He fears neither the sight nor the opposition of man, whom he frequently makes his prey, and it is generally supposed that he prefers human flesh to that of any other animal. The tiger is indeed one of the few animals whose ferocity can never be subdued. The strength of the animal is so great that when it has killed an animal, whether it be a horse, a buffalo, or a deer, it carries it off with such ease that it seems no impediment to its flight. If it be undisturbed, it plunges its head into the body of the animal up to its very eyes, as if to satiate itself with blood. End quote. And here is an eyewitness account of the tiger attacking the young Monroe. Warning, this is graphic. Quote, To describe the awful, horrid, and lamentable accident I have been an eyewitness of is impossible. Yesterday morning, Mr. Downey of the company's troops, Lieutenant Pyfinch, poor Mr. Monroe, son of Sir Hector, and myself, went on shore on Sauger Island to shoot deer. We saw innumerable tracks of tigers and deer, but still we were induced to pursue our sport and did the whole day. About half past three, we sat down in the edge of the jungle to eat some cold meat sent us from the ship and had just commenced our meal when Mr. Pie Finch and a black servant told us there was a fine deer within six yards of us. Mr. Downey and myself immediately jumped up to take our guns. Mine was the nearest, and I had just laid hold of it when I heard a roar like thunder, and saw an immense royal tiger spring on the unfortunate Monroe, who was sitting down. 
In a moment, his head was in the beast's mouth, and he rushed into the jungle with him, with as much ease as I could lift a kitten, tearing him through the thickest bushes and trees, everything yielding to his monstrous strength. The agonies of horror, regret, and I must say fear, for there were two tigers, male and female, rushed on me at once. The only effort I could make was to fire at him, though the poor youth was still in his mouth. I relied partly on providence, partly on my own aim, and fired a musket. I saw the tiger stagger and agitated and cried out so immediately. Mr. Downey then fired two shots, and I one more. We retired from the jungle, and a few minutes after, Mr. Monroe came up to us all over blood and fell. We took him on our backs to the boat and got every medical assistance for him from the Valentine East Indiaman, which lay at anchor near the island, but in vain. He lived twenty-four hours in the extreme of torture. His head and skull were torn and broke to pieces, and he was wounded by the claws all over his neck and shoulders. But it was better to take him away, though irrecoverable, than leave him to be devoured limb by limb. We have just read the funeral service over the body and committed it to the deep. He was an amiable and promising youth. I must observe, there was a large fire blazing close to us, composed of ten or a dozen whole trees. I made it myself on purpose to keep the tigers off, as I had always heard it would. There were eight or ten natives about us, many shots had been fired at the place, and much noise and laughing at the time. But this ferocious animal disregarded all. The human mind cannot form an idea of the scene. It turned my very soul within me. The beast was about four and a half feet high and nine long. His head appeared as large as an ox's, his eyes darting fire, and his roar, when he first seized his prey, will never be out of my recollection. We had scarcely pushed our boats from that cursed shore when the tigress made her appearance, raging mad almost, and remained on the sand as long as the distance would allow me to see her. End quote. That's what was in the news as Blake was writing this poem. With that horrific and dramatic account of a tiger in mind, let's look at the poem. It begins, Tiger, tiger, burning bright. Listen to that cadence. Tiger, tiger, burning bright. It's like a nursery rhyme. Old Mother Hubbard went to the cupboard. The repetition, the sing-song nature of it. Tiger, tiger, duck, duck, goose. Johnny, Johnny, what do you see? That's kind of the feel here. But in this case, it's also imploring. Tiger, tiger. And it's easy to miss how radical the second two words are. Burning bright. Burning bright. What burns bright? Stars, fire. In four words, we have our subject right before us, not just tiger, but tiger, tiger. And we have the tiger in its perfect state. It's not pouncing or leaping or growling or doing anything that tigers do. It's burning bright. It's being something that tigers are. Not doing, but being. And that thing that they are is like an element, like a flame, like an explosion, a candle, a fire a star, four words. And here we are in the middle of it. We have a tiger as an element, as a force. See how this works? It's pure genius. Tiger, tiger, striped creature with four legs. That wouldn't do it, would it? That could be a cuddly cat, a stuffed animal. How about this? Tiger, tiger, scary thing. Might be a little better, but it's still not exploding off the page, is it? It doesn't tremble with its own power. But tiger, tiger, burning bright. It's like life itself. The energy of life is uncontainable in this creature. God, this is such a great poem. We're one line in. <laughs> line two. In the forests of the night. Still sing-songy, but the perfect setting. Not the daylight, burning in the night, lurking, stalking full of power in a dark place, the forest of the night. Next two lines. What immortal hand or eye could frame thy fearful symmetry? I wonder if symmetry was pronounced symmetry. 
in Blake's world. Hmm. In any case, yes, indeed. What immortal hand or eye could frame thy fearful symmetry? Darwin says this is evolution. Maybe that's in here. How did this thing get made? Maybe it's God, a designer. Maybe it's some darker force, this terrifying creature. Who made it? Whose idea was it? Humans wouldn't have done it. Was it Mother Nature? Was it God? Was it an immortal hand or an immortal eye? That's the question that's being posed here. Who dreamed this thing up? Who carved it from clay and breathed life into it? It's got such a fearful symmetry to it. Whose idea was that? God's? Why? To show humans what real power was or... Just because power is beautiful, natural power and natural energy has a kind of awesome, explosive force to it. Force that lives inside sharks and lightning and blizzards and hurricanes and tigers. Next stanza. In what distant deeps or skies burnt the fire of thine eyes? On what wings dare he aspire? What the hand Dare seize the fire. It's a tribute. This poem is a tribute to tigers, how awesome they are, what force they have, but it's also a tribute to God, but in a weird way. I think God has to have created the tiger, don't you? I mean, in the poem. I don't think Blake really thought it was some lesser God or the process of evolution. But he's asking it as a question, not as a statement. He, I think he's leaving that prospect open because he's inviting us to think, holy smokes, God created this thing. It was God's idea to put this thing on earth. And look how bold it was for God to do this. God imagined, envisioned a creature so full of latent power, so full of ferocity, so willing to attack and kill and die, so equipped for the business of life at this high level on the food chain. What a thing for God to do. Satan would be more likely to dream this thing up, wouldn't he? Isn't the tiger more like an evil beast than a benign, friendly creature? Isn't there a suggestion of this? Blake leaves it open. In what distant deeps or skies? Deeps or skies? Skies are heaven, and deeps are hell, right? Blake is saying this could have happened in either place. It must have happened far away, not in some nearby workshop. That's not our metaphor. This didn't happen next door. It happened in distant deeps or skies, somewhere cosmic, the bottom of the ocean, the middle of the earth, outer space, another realm. Still think it was God. I think that's Blake's point. What a thing for God to do, create tigers to pad jungly through the forest. Tigers who stick their heads into another creature up to their eyes, just to satiate themselves with their blood. It took an act of aspiration to create such a thing, like climbing onto wings. Blake says, you need to soar pretty high to get to the point where you'd create such a thing. To see the burning fire of a tiger's eyes, and to dare to seize that fire and create this creature out of it. If you don't believe in God, or if you do believe in God, but believe in evolution too, it's still pretty amazing. It's saying, look at what nature can create. Thunderous waterfalls, sharp, deep chasms, volcanoes that conjure up hellfire from deep within the earth and spray it all over cities, burying them in smoke and lava and ash. Nature creates all that. God created it. God dreamed it up. All those things, and tigers too. Next eight lines. And what shoulder and what art could twist the sinews of thy heart? And when thy heart began to beat, what dread hand and what dread feet? What the hammer, what the chain, in what furnace was thy brain? What the anvil, what dread grasp, dare its deadly terrors clasp? more astonishment. Here's Blake saying, look at this tiger. Look at its power. Look at the elemental force 
that went into it. Think about a God that could create it, a God that wanted to create it, a God that imagined it, envisioned it, a God that contains love and mercy, but also power, omniscient power, anger, ferocity, vengeance. It's a celebration of nature that turns into a celebration of God. It takes you back to a celebration of nature. We wonder at the God that would dream and dare to put this creature on earth. The next stanza emphasizes this point. When the stars threw down their spears and watered heaven with their tears, did he smile his work to see? Did he who made the lamb make thee? It was God, right? Not Satan, not evolution. God is the creator for Blake. And what did he think when he made this tiger? (laughs) Did he smile? What kind of evil gleam would be in that smile? Did he smile in a sober way? Did he think this is good? This is right? Or did he think, oh shit, what have I done? Oh crap, I went a little overboard with this one. (laughs) I let my, my dark side out for a minute. No, of course not. He smiled and said it was good. But how strange is that? That the God that could create a lamb could also create a tiger. God has many different sides, Blake is saying, many different motives, many different purposes and ways, mysterious ways we can only wonder at, marvel at the wide-ranging greatness of God. There's no other way to look at nature than as evidence of this extreme, wild, passionate canvas of a genius. A genius, God is, a visionary, someone misunderstood maybe thought to be insane, someone Blake must have identified with. Final stanza brings us home. Tiger, tiger burning bright in the forest of the night, what immortal hand or eye dare frame thy fearful symmetry? That's a repeated stanza from the first one. But now we have some background, some activity in between, some roller coaster ride behind us. We're a little breathless from our journey, looking at this tiger and thinking about God. There were some loop-de-loops in there, some ascension, some plummeting. Our hair is blown back. Our hearts are pounding. We almost might miss the subtle change between the first stanza and the last one. The first stanza said, what immortal hand or eye could frame thy fearful symmetry? The last stanza says, What immortal hand or eye dare frame thy fearful symmetry? Alfred Kazin, the critic, says that this means that contemplating a tiger turns an act of observation into an act of daring. I don't think that's quite right. I don't think it's the observer who's changed exactly. It's not the observer who dares. The change is here that we're first marveling wondrous at the tiger, shocked. We think, oh my, who could have done this? Who could have created it? It's hard to believe someone did, but someone did do it. And the more we think about it and what that means, the more it seems like it took some cojones to do it. Someone was tapped into the desire to see a powerful beast walking through the jungle. Someone had that desire. That entity made it happen, must have felt transgressive, even dangerous to put it together. Someone had to dare to do it. Again, it's looking at a tiger, admiring its power, which is also the power of nature, but the poem folds back in on itself and looks at the power of God and the nature of that power and what that says about the nature of God. All of this in 16 simple lines that a five-year-old could recite and memorize and seeming to come from nowhere. No wonder Wordsworth thought that Blake was a genius. No wonder Coleridge assumed he was insane. No wonder it's the most anthologized poem in the English language. And no wonder that Northrop Fry nevertheless says that Blake, who is the most, the author of the most anthologized poem in the English language, is still among all other poets writing in English the one who deserves to be read more.
Okay, there we go. William Blake. I'll give you the whole quote by Northrop Fry, who, remember, taught Margaret Atwood. Nice little confluence there. I'm sure Atwood likes Blake. He seems like her cup of tea. Fry said of Blake's writings that Blake's body of work is, quote, in proportion to its merits, the least read body of poetry in the English language, end quote. The tiger is our gateway drug here. We should all go dive into his broader collection and his art, too. Critic Jonathan Jones said Blake is, quote, far and away the greatest artist Britain has ever produced, end quote. Not just the greatest, not just the greatest ever, but far and away the greatest ever. Far and away. I'm not sure I'm far and away the best at anything, except maybe at being far or being away or being both at the same time, which I do pretty well. Far and away, the best at being far and away. Not trying to brag here. I'm just saying I'm the best. And that you shouldn't even try to imitate me in this regard. Most people can't get either as far or as away as I can. And when they try, they fail miserably and everyone laughs at them. You'll probably find that no matter where you go, you'll still be there. You won't be far away at all takes a special talent like mine to really pull that off. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.